What's up, Andy? Not much, man. It's warming up a little bit. How about you? Yeah, I, I can't complain, man. Uh, as you know, we've down here in Texas had somewhat of a winter apocalypse, is what they're calling it. Yeah, I heard about that. It was on the news. You guys had like a hundred car pileup on the highway and like lost power for a few days or whatever. That was crazy. Yeah, a lot of things just kind of came out of nowhere. And, you know, when we hear that there's going to be a winter storm, we don't. We don't take it to heart because we don't get much winter, but this is the first year, at least I'm going on 37. This is the first time I've seen anything like this, and I'll just sum it up with saying I will never again wish for a white Christmas. Wow. Yeah, that's that's crazy because when you think about, yeah, Dallas or, you know, like I'll make it kind of chilly in the wintertime, but like never like, you know, the snow like you guys had. I mean, we get it up here in Kansas City. You know, we get snow and stuff. So we're. Like the thing is, like for us, it's not so bad because our, uh, you know, the gov- the uh, the the what do you call it? The street crews are prepared for. You know, they have salt trucks and snow plows and all that kind of stuff, so they can clear off the roads pretty easily. But you guys down there don't have any access to any of that stuff, so it just makes it that much more worse for you guys. Yeah, it exists, but it's so minimal because it's barely used and. I see pictures all the time of how beautiful up north can be and the snow and everything. And you guys are so accustomed to it and built for it. You know what I mean? Like, man, our power shut down. Like, our water pipes broke. Our apartment flooded. Like, just so many things happened that made that one solid week just so unbearable. You know what I mean? But then we turn around and four days later, it's 80 degrees and we're in shorts again. Yeah, I heard that's crazy. I mean... We yeah. have weather swings here in Missouri, but not not as not like that. <laughs> <laughs> it, but you know, it is like I said, it is warming up. It's like the first day of spring. Was it today or was it yesterday? I don't remember. It was yesterday. Yesterday, okay, awesome. So as we're recording, it was yesterday, but uh, it's spring now technically, so that's awesome. Looking forward to some spring weather, some warmer weather, some sunshine, and uh, getting outside and doing some stuff maybe, but. Uh, and uh, yeah, so but going back to what wintertime, that's a perfect segue to to uh, the movie that we are talking about. But before I get to that, I just want to mention real quick that this episode is brought to you by RottenReynolds.com. I'll tell you a little bit more about them later on. But uh, yeah, so speaking of wintertime, that is a perfect segue into the movie we're going to be talking about, which is a perfect winter horror movie called The Thing. Uh, it's John Carpenter's classic from 1982. And, uh, yeah, you know, when you're thinking about wintertime, I just can't think of a better movie to talk about. And this episode, it's not so much going to be like a review episode, but we're it's going to be more of like a tribute to John Carpenter's The Thing. We're going to talk about our first-time experiences with it. Uh, you know, I kind of did a little bit, little exploration into the evolution of 
how the story came about. And uh, so we're just going to do a general conversation about the thing. And uh, and, you know, maybe we'll we'll find out why, you know, we'll uh, we'll talk about why it's such a iconic movie for us, especially to start off with. Let's just uh, talk about our first time experiences with the movie. Uh, just go ahead and share yours. So it was a movie that I've always been aware of because of the cover, but I had never seen it for the longest time. And I remember being uh, probably 15, 16 years old, and I was at a Sam Goody, if that takes you back. And <laughs> I was going to get a couple of DVDs, right? DVDs were, were still fresh and hot on the market, very expensive. And the reason that I had never seen this movie up until then was because it was still always like a $20 DVD. Like, can never get it cheaper. And I remember having some money to spend. So I was at Sam Goody, and that night I picked up John Carpenter's The Thing and the original William Castle's 13 Ghosts. Bought those two DVDs together, went home, and I remember watching the 13 Ghosts movie first because I had already seen the remake, right? And absolutely loved it. I was like, I want to see the original. And it came with the 3D glasses in it, and I loved it. And then my backup movie was John Carpenter's The Thing. Dude, you want to talk about, like, turning the tables. Like, I thought The 13 Ghosts was the guaranteed great movie, and The Thing, like, it might be a flop, might not. When I, my mind was blown when I had watched John Carpenter's The Thing, and I had never seen the 1951 thing from another world at this point. So I had no idea of the novella. Like, I didn't know what the story was. It's just an alien movie. But I was a John Carpenter fan because I... At that point, age 15, I was like live and breathe Halloween. Like there was nothing better in the world, right? I had no Casablanca, <laughs> no no, no idea of all these other movies that existed. It was um, Blue Cheese, and anybody who listens to Joe Rogan will get that uh, reference. But long story short, man, my mind was blown that night. I had watched John Carpenter's A Thing, and my first thought was like, I have to show this to every friend that I have because this is potentially one of the best horror movies ever. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, as far as you know, being one of the best horror movies ever. Say, I mean, you can't beat this movie when it comes to special effects. When it comes to acting, you have some some really recognizable faces. You got Kurt Russell, Wilford Brimley, T.K. Carter, yeah, Keith and, David. Uh, exactly. Yeah, that's what uh, I was the list goes on and on. Thinking back to my first, it's hard for me to remember the first time that I watched this movie, but I remember my first exposure, and like you said. I think I probably saw the video store, like the the, the uh, VHS cover on the shelf. The first time I was made aware of the movie, it was going to be shown on TV. So it was like a TV ad. And so this wasn't even the movie. It was just the ad. And so I remember seeing during the ad, there was like, I think they showed the part where Vennings uh, was uh, chased out. And like he had like the weird hands and he was like yeah. doing the, the scream, you know, and and then the, like the next shot was of the player monster. And so like, those are the two things that I, that I remember from this movie. And, uh, so that, that really made an impression on me, but I couldn't quite remember the name of the movie for the longest time. And then I started, you know, discovering John Carpenter, like Halloween was my gateway into John Carpenter. And I think probably the thing was probably close to like the next movie. I would say, um, I definitely Halloween, you know, was the first movie I saw by him, but then like, I don't think there's any other movie more iconic for John Carpenter than The Thing. So it's probably I probably bought the DVD and then watched it because it's possible that I rented it, but I really can't remember. It was probably like in 2000 or something like that. As a kid, this movie made an impression on me. And then 
you know, I guess I just didn't see it until I was an, when I'm thinking back on it, I didn't see it again as until I was an adult. So once I did actually see it, I was like, yes, this is the movie I was thinking of. And, and just the special effects were really what stood out to me, what really made an impact. And now kind of recognize it for the acting and the atmosphere that it creates. But, you know, thinking about like how this, where this movie came from, the roots of the movie. Yeah. So it was based on a 1938 novella by John W. Campbell Jr. called Who Goes There? The uh, 1982 movie is a lot closer adaptation to the novella than the 1951 movie by Howard Hawks. Yeah, we all love the 1951 version. And I think for the time, they did what they could with the special effects, you know. Um, it's not, I know it wasn't like what, well, I don't know if anybody really envisioned what the special effects could be at first. But it, they, you know, they kind of were working with what they had at the time. Um, and so it was great for, you know, the 1951 movie is great for what it is, but as far as like the characters, the storyline, the beats of the storyline, the 1982 version by John Carpenter follows the novella very closely as far as what characters they they feature, the things that happen in the story, the way the creature looks. Some aspects of how the creature looks are the same. So it's interesting, and I went back and listened to the novella this last week just to kind of get refreshed on it. Um, to kind of see the similarities and stuff. And, and yeah, and it, like in the novella, it has Blair, it has McCready, it has uh, uh, the dog handler, Clark, it has Gary, the, you know, the kind of like the station manager or whatever you want to call him. Um, it, ha- it has uh, the cook, but the cook has a different name. Does it have Childs? It, it does not have Childs, no. Okay. That's what. Um, it has um, Norris, he's in it. Um, okay. Did it have Windows? No, it didn't have windows. It didn't have uh, uh, what's that one guy's name? The guy that the re- Fuchs. It didn't have Fuchs. Okay. Who's the reefer? Who's the reefer guy? I can't oh. remember what his. I can't remember what his name is. I'm drawing a blank. Palmer. It, did, it didn't have Palmer either. That's that's his name. So yeah, but it had Blair. It had Doc Copper. It had McCready. Although the the physical descriptions are a little bit different. Uh, I think McCready looked different but anyway it, that's pretty interesting man because i'm a huge 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 fan of the 1951 film but we won't dive deep into that one because we want to focus on the 80s film but i would have like i knew that john carpenter's version was closer to the book from what i had heard but i didn't even know it was to the point where the characters were even like i would have assumed they would have kept the characters the same and so just you telling me that mccready and blair and norris that they're all actually in the book i'm like man I guess that's a reason why John Carpenter put the thing in his movie Halloween. As we all know, he really loved it, but you know, he, he got down to detail. It just goes to show that the 1951 version is is a great adaptation, you know, especially John Carpenter liked it and he featured it in Halloween. But I think that for the time, you know, because the uh, the novella does a lot of the things that we see in the, the 1982 version, because there's a lot of like shape-shifting type stuff going on. Now, the, the original form of the alien was a little bit different. Like, because in the, in the 1982 version, we really don't see like the, I say the original version, but I think it's just the, we don't really know what the original version or if there is an original version of the alien really, but the form that it had while it was frozen in the block of ice, we really don't even see that. So um, in the novella, it describes it pretty well. Like while it's still encased in the block of ice, it has like three red eyes and it has like these like 
this like blue uh, hair, but it's like more like worms, like that are you know on its head. Um, Sounds like a creature from H.P. Lovecraft or something. Exactly. Yeah, it was very much. Um, if you've read the novella At the Mountains of Madness, it's very reminiscent of that kind of story where they go to the Antarctic and they discover some weird like species of alien or whatever. But this one is like, but this one's kind of interesting because in the novella, they, these, the Americans, they're the ones that actually discover the spaceship first. It's not the, there is no like Norwegian camp or whatever. The Americans go and they, they discover the spaceship and they actually are trying to get down to, through the ice to the spaceship. So they plant some bombs, some like thermite, but it actually blows the whole ship up in the novel. So they're, so, so they're kind of, they're, they're kind of like, oh crap, we blew up the ship. But then they, they discovered there was like one of the aliens that was nearby that was frozen. So they were able to dig up the alien and, and bring it to the camp. And now the novella, it's a lot more dialogue heavy, which is understandable. It's a book, you know, you're going to, you're going to rely more on the, on the dialogue. So there's a lot more back and forth conversations about first off what to do with the alien uh, as far as like whether to thaw it out or not. There's a big argument because there's like the scientific aspect with like Blair and Copper. They're both doctors. Um, Blair's the biologist, but he's like, yeah, we want to thaw this out. We want to study this thing. But then everybody else is like, hell no, we don't want this thing thawed out. You know, what if it's still alive? And Copper's like, oh, there's no way this thing could still be alive. Um, you know, anything, any, any sophisticated life form that gets frozen, it's dead. So overall, so in the end, you know, of course they decide to let it thaw out and that's where hell, all hell breaks loose. But the novella does a really good job of building up that paranoia of like, who is really the monster? Who's the thing? Like who got infected? Because in the novella, there's a part where, where um, they first become aware that it's thawed out as it's attacking the dogs. But as you find out, there was a, there's actually a guy in the room with the thing as it was thawing out. And so there's this question of was that guy affected before because the thing escaped from that room. So there's this there's this whole like mystery. It's like who's actually infected. So I really like how the novella kind of builds up that mystery and that suspense. But like I said, there's a lot more like uh, debate about like how are they going to test everybody? What kind of tests are they going to perform? How effective are the tests going to be? Um, who do we trust? You know, so so the novella really builds up that that uh, setting of paranoia, and I think the John Carpenter film really does a good job with that as well. The novella kind of goes more into like the scientific aspects of the of the testing, which kind of went over my head in some parts. You telling me you're not a scientist? No, no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the novella um, was it a modern recording, or did it have kind of like the 1950s voices? If you know what I mean. Where everybody sounds like a, a radio show host. No, it was more of a modern thing, and it was just one narrator. It was just one guy doing every voice. Oh, sure, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So, but you know, it was pretty good because he made it sound like different people. You know, whatever. Oh yeah. But, uh, That's why they do what they do. But yeah, there. But there was some interesting scenes in the novella that they. It, it's kind of a trade-off because in the novella it has some interesting scenes, but in the 1982 movie. Also has some interesting scenes that were not in the novella, so I think that I think it's a good um, trade off between the two. Like they're both great companion pieces to each other. So if you read the novella and then you watch the John Carpenter movie, I think that would be a great experience for people 
and you'll kind of see how closely it follows the, the book. Got a question for you. Yeah. Did you say that Nalls was in the novella? The the cook is in the novella, yeah. but he has a different name. I think it's Kenner in the novel. Okay. So anybody that, listening to our podcast knows that we, we talk about everything in depth. So we should have said this in the beginning, just in case somebody's listened to this for the first time. Uh, we spoil. Like we, we want to talk about it so we can get it all out there. So if you haven't seen the movie, please don't listen to the podcast yet. But my question to you, Andy, since you've heard the novella, in the 1982 John Carpenter film, Nalls is a great character. But like at the end, he just disappears. Like he gets killed off screen. We don't know anything that happens to him. We don't see anything in the novella. Does the cook is similar? So actually, in the novella, the cook is murdered. See, that's what's up. So in the novel, the the cook is more superstitious, and so okay. he's like constantly praying and singing hymns. Oh wow! Okay. Throughout so much, and he's singing them very loudly, so much so that is very annoying to the other characters they're in another room like away from him i think they had to and I, I can't remember i think they had to isolate him for some reason but he's like praying and singing hymns and everybody's complaining because he's like doing it so loud sure. and so they uh but what they do to kind of get everybody's mind off the the situation is they set up a little movie theater in like the main cafeteria like it's like a big room and uh so they have like a projection screen and everything and so, but they, they stationed somebody at the doorway to make sure nobody can leave because at this point, nobody trusts anybody right now. Right. Because they really don't know who's a thing and who's not. But anyway, so they got the cook like singing and praying in a different room down the hall. And they're watching these like movies and stuff. And all of a sudden, McCready notices that it's quiet. Like he doesn't hear the praying or singing anymore. So they go to check on the cook. And of course, he's been murdered. So then, so then that kind of adds an extra element to it. But uh, anyway, so okay. you do in the in the novel you do find out what happens to the uh, cook. But speaking of Nulls, I want I do want to add that there there was scripted a scene where he encountered the thing, but uh, they ran out of budget to really film it, so they had to scrap some oh. of the scenes that they had planned. So it sucks to make it to the end, is what you're saying. You're going to die in a movie, die when the budget's there. Yeah, because I guess there was actually going to be a version of the thing called the Box Monster. I don't know what that was going to be, but uh, that was what Nalls encountered. And so, unfortunately, we didn't get to see it. Oh, just give us a couple more million. I want to see it. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, who's our character? Gary. You know, he makes it to the end, too. Except yeah. when he gets it, it's just like a hand in his face. It's a few seconds, and then that's all we get. Exactly. And at that point, like they had to really trim down on the effects because even at that point, Rob Bettin and his team had to go back and ask for more, more money because the effects were costing so much money. I mean, it was worth it. You know, if you see the effects, they're really? great. But they had, even for like the Blair Monster, which was the big, it was like the big reveal at the end. Yeah. They had to stream that. They had to streamline that down even um, to what they actually showed. Uh, but even even what they showed was still great. But yeah, so so Nalls was supposed to have a, a scene that they filmed, but they got cut out. Let me ask you a question, Andy. I know we have such a large roster, but only talking about the 1982 version. Do you have a favorite character, or if one of these like which character would you relate more? Like in this situation, who do you think you were? <laughs> 
That's a good question. Don't say you're Palmer. I won't believe you. No, I, I can see myself maybe in like a Windows or <laughs> maybe <I don't> know. <laughs> communication. That's close to podcasting. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I definitely am not a McCready, I don't think, or a Childs. Probably not a Gary. I'm not a, you know. I used to rollerblade. Does that make me the cook? There you go. You're not all just regular <laughs> skating around, man, listening to some groove music. I'm all about it. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Very superstitious. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. So uh, that made me. Th- that didn't. I don't know why that made me think of Blair, but it made me think of Blair. Um, you know the scene where they put Blair out in the shack, and because they can't trust him, he tries to kill everybody. Basically, that same thing happens in the novella too. And so, it's, but the encounter with Blair in the in the shack was really cool, and it was a lot better in the novella because they actually have an encounter with him as a thing. Oh wow. And it, and out, out in the shack, you know. Yeah. So I guess that kind of replaces the Blair thing in the uh, at the end of the movie. But anyway, but that so yeah that so they keep that whole encounter with the Blair thing in the novella. So that's cool. So so like the the novella is not really I wouldn't say the novella is boring. It's it's it has it has some really cool scenes with the monster just like it does in the movie. But we get we actually get a little bit more explanation about. In the novella, we get more explanation about what the Blur thing was trying to do as well in the, in the shack. So that's kind of cool. That is cool. Do we in the novella do they um, talk about where he's building a spaceship, like in, like he's destroying all the things outside to try to construct it? Actually, in the novella, he doesn't build a spaceship, but he builds something else. So okay. he builds some yeah. other, he builds some other things that are really interesting. Man, I feel uh, like this podcast is all about the novella now. We need to, <laughs> yeah. So Get back on the movie, yeah. yeah if, if anything, just you know, take take this as we're saying the novella is worth it to read or listen to because it's on Audible. That's where I found it. Yeah. So the movie, you know, I think the biggest thing for me is, of course, the special effects. You can't you can't uh, talk about this movie without mentioning the special effects. And of course, you know, you had Rob Bottin, and I think at the time he was like. 2021 20, when he did the he special effects on this. yeah and he had done the special effects uh now i'm gonna have to look up the howling to see the, when that i was, was gonna say the howling was either be- was before this right 81 that's what i'm gonna have to check out i think you're right i think it was 81 please stand by it's funny i was talking to uh ben you know where we recorded our episode mm-hmm. um he said that he likes all the because I was telling him how I edited out all the awkward silences and stuff. He's like, "Oh yeah." He's like, "No man, leave it in." I love that stuff. I'm like, okay. Yep. Yeah, I listened I'll, to that episode too. I appreciate the shout out. Oh yeah, man. I'll probably still edit this stuff out because. Oh yeah. So the howling was before the thing, so he definitely cut his teeth on the howling because there's some really cool special effects for the howling with that, especially with the werewolf transformation. Ooh, he did makeup effects on Maniac. From 1980. Nice. Really? Damn, yeah. I wonder if he studied under Tom Savini. It wouldn't surprise me because he also and he also did special makeup on the fog. That's how John Carpenter got hooked oh, up with him. There you go. Yeah. Nice. He did stuff for Piranha in 1978. Okay. Uh, he, was a, he was an assistant makeup artist in Star Wars A New Hope, 1977. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So he'd have been a teenager then. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, you know, he he's worked with he's worked on some of the you know best special effects movies out there. So I mean, to say that the thing was you know it wasn't his first movie, but he was young and 
Um, and he cut his teeth on some other movies. So, I mean, I, I, you know, it doesn't surprise me that he did the great effects that he, that he did. And of course he had a bigger, he had a decent budget on this movie, but they still needed more money. They still kind of ran out of money for the budget. And I, and I was reading up on the effects, like the ingredients of the effects. Yeah. They use like stuff like Jello and, and like mayonnaise and stuff. It was really crazy. <laughs> we need more mayonnaise. Some, some of the stuff that they use, but you know, just like all the slime and the, and all the different, like, you know, because they had to create, make it look like body parts, you know, and, right. and things like that. And, well, yeah, when you see like the parts of the body like detach and separate, and you see all the limbs connected and they ooze out and everything. Yeah, imagine I putting mean, that on your hot dog. Oh, ugh. <laughs> so, I but mean, I mean, he he used the effects. I think the lighting. He's great lighting. You know, he didn't he didn't show you too much of the effects, and I think just the way the context of the effects were really effective too. Like you know, with the dog, you know, I think. Everybody loves dogs, I think, for the most part. So when you see a dog like transforming into this monster, I think people are I mean, obviously you knew something was gonna happen just with the way the dog was acting. And I heard that that dog wasn't even really trained like it wasn't really trained to act that way. It was like part wolf or something. So oh, I wow. guess like I guess like it just naturally was like acting very uh it just kind of like I guess that's just how wolves are. They kind of like stare. They they don't they're just kind of sit still and kind of stare like that. I guess from what I was reading. So that's kind of cool. Uh, but just the 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 notion that that dog is actually this monster, this alien monster. You know, it's like head falls off, and these tentacles, spider legs come out. Yeah. It's, you know, it's very unsettling, especially when it starts attacking the other dogs. And you know, it, it's a really effective scene. <laughs> And I, I love one of the lines. I think it's, uh, I think it's Clark that says he's like, I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I love that line. Hey, wanted to take a quick break from the podcast to talk about our sponsor for this episode, and they are Rotten Rentals. And you can go to the website, it's RottenRentals.com. And if you're wondering what what the heck is Rotten Rentals, it's uh, it's basically like a VHS mystery box. And what I mean by VHS is it, it they send you a plastic clamshell VHS case, and they put movie artwork on the cover of it. Um, the cover's movie artwork. It's a reproduction of like original VHS artwork. You know those old. VHS covers from back in the day that we love. You know, this really keys into that video store experience that we, all of us 80s and 90s kids experienced. You can pick out the movie art that you want on the VHS case, and then it's filled with a lot of cool stuff on the inside, like vintage trading cards, buttons, stickers, mini zombie figures, uh, plastic bugs, you know, just all kinds of cool stuff, little stickers, pins, lots of cool little collectibles. And these guys, they're a local business, so I'm really proud to team up with them. And they've been doing this since 2012, and they got to start at local horror conventions and film festivals. So they are really plugged into the horror community here locally. So um, this is a really cool service, a really cool business. It's a really cool idea. If you're a horror fan and you like the, if you like subscription boxes, this isn't really a subscription box. You just basically 
pick out the one you want to buy it and they'll send it to you. They have different ranges of packs. So they have their standard pack, which is $8. And they have a lot of different movies you can choose from for the artwork on this VHS case. Um, you know, they have anything from like newer movies like Three from Hell to older movies like April Fool's Day, Alien, Army of Darkness. I recently got a Prom Night VHS case, which is really cool. And I did an unboxing video, which I will share on all of our social media. So you guys can check out what I got in my pack and that'll give you a good idea of what you can get. They have the standard pack for eight bucks and that's $8 plus shipping. They also have their premium VHS packs, which are more, which these are themed items based on uh, the cover art that you select. So these are really cool and these are like $20 each. And they have uh, an It Pennywise uh, pack. They have a Stranger Things pack. They have a Joker pack, the Videodrome pack. So they have a, a good selection of those packs as well. And, and each item in those packs are actually going to be themed towards the cover art, the, towards the movie that you've selected. So if you don't like, if you're not a fan of the mystery as much, then you can get one of those for $20 plus shipping. They also have limited edition packs. These feature limited edition artwork. They're just, you know, limited runs. They only have so many that they sell so many copies that they sell and uh, and each you know they're all all the copies that they sell are numbered and some of these packs actually include some unique items that pertain to the film that you picked out so that's really cool that's a cool feature the other and they also have way more goodies inside than the standard pack too and the limited edition packs they range in price so it just kind of depends on which one you want some of them are twenty dollars some of them are twelve dollars so just go and check it out and see what they got on hand at the time. And they also have what they call Spoiled Rotten. And this is their kids line. So these feature like some, some kid-friendly artwork on the VHS case. They have like Bride of Frankenstein and Vampire artwork. So that's pretty cool. And they also do, they have an E.T. case. And they also have a Goosebumps case. So these are really cool. These are only $5. And these have more kid-friendly treats inside. There's no candy, no sharp objects. It's going to be a cool experience for your kid. And you know, one of the things that I've seen other collectors do is they'll, they'll take these cases once they get them and they'll go out into the wild and they'll try to find um, the VHS tape for that movie and then they'll store the tape inside the case. So that's a really cool way to display these cases. It's a cool way to, to maybe display your VHS tapes that you have already. Like I said, they have a lot of different movies, a lot of different artwork that you can choose from. Well, I'm really happy with the pack that I've received. And I actually purchased like a limited edition one from them at a convention some years ago. So that was really cool too. I knew about them before this and I was really happy to partner up with them. So so definitely go check these guys out. Their website is RottenRentals.com uh, and see what, see what they have to offer. So thanks for checking them out. And uh, thanks Rotten Rentals for sponsoring this episode. I'll tell you, Andy, we talk about how much like this movie is remembered for its amazing special effects. The effects are probably my third favorite thing about this movie. I don't put them first. Interesting. Okay. I, well, I won't knock the effects at all. Yeah. Okay. But for me, and I think just kind of wired how I am, my first two kind of intertwine. One could be two, two could be one. But my two favorite things about this movie are the characters and the performances, the actors, and the atmosphere. And I know you hear that a lot on all the different podcasts, but I remember when I was 15 years old and I was watching this movie, I, 
I know a lot more now about how movies are made and, and things of that nature, but I was so naive. So when I was watching, I literally thought they filmed this in Antarctica. It was oh, such yeah. a, a believable and, and never mind and um, things in the background, but the blue tint that was used, like he used in Halloween, the isolation of the snow dunes and everything around there. Like I literally do was like, I don't know how they got away with filming this movie here, but this is amazing. And the, they must be so cold, you know, like the dedication of these actors. But we talk about in the story how paranoia drives so much to the storyline. I really bought into it, man. Like there was a point where I could not tell you who was and who wasn't a thing. And even after seeing this movie, probably close to 20 times now, this movie still carries that ongoing conversation. Like it's so much fun to talk to different people and get their different like outlooks or what they believe had happened on it. Because when it boils down to the climax of the ending and you're left with two survivors, you still don't know are one of them infected or neither infected or are they both infected? Yeah, you know, and I think that's kind of the official thing, even though they, they've interviewed, they've talked to Dean Cundy in an interview, and he said that he did actually add like a, uh, like an effect to people's eyes. Like it was like a kind of like a, a, a like an eye shine or something, like a, a little twinkle in their eye. Like, so he added some extra lighting for the people that were supposed to be human, and the oh. people that didn't have that were supposed to be the thing. Almost like a lack of human spirit inside. Exactly. Yeah. So, but I think, I think John Carpenter really wanted it to be left ambiguous. Oh, for I, sure. I think that was what he was, yeah, I think that's what he was really going for. So, um, you know, there, there's a lot of fan theories out there, which I, lo I love to watch those like on YouTube and stuff like that, um, where people try to say, okay, this was what happened at the end. Like Charles was a thing or he wasn't, you know, stuff like that. I, I love that kind of stuff. But so I, I love ambiguous endings because it leaves it open to debate. It leaves it open to discussion, which is half the fun of these movies. So do you have any theories, you know, on this movie or do you just like it kind of left more with a question mark? I feel like anytime I go down a road and I feel like I'm getting closer to the answer, something else gets brought up and it kind of detours me to a different road. And I kind of like you. I kind of like to sit back on YouTube and see other people talk about it. I've heard other podcasts talk about it. I think when it boils down to it, people are like, you can tell by I never heard about the glitter in the eye. Like, I feel like he's saying that just to make you watch it again. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like you said, John Carpenter says one thing. Dean Cundy says another. I think even um, Keith David has said other things. But I think it's kind of like, OK, you've seen It Follows, right? Oh, yeah. OK, you know how in that movie you there is no like timeline because it like there's things in the future, things in the past. You're like, when is all this happening? I feel like the same things in this movie, like some people are showing signs of it and then later they're not. And then some other people are showing signs. So you never really know. And I think that might be the point. Like you said, is to leave it as ambiguous as possible. So you're always wondering and watching. Yeah, for sure. I think there's people that tried to figure out who was infected first. And you know, like, sure. Cause there's that scene where the dog was just roaming around the camp free and the, the dog goes in that room and all you see is a silhouette of a person on the wall. Mm -hmm. And uh, so people try to look at that silhouette and say, oh, it was this guy or it was this guy, judging by the shape of the head or whatever. But it's funny, John Carpenter wanted that to be ambiguous as well because he used just like an uh, like part somebody from the crew. It wasn't I was going to say actor. it was an extra. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he used somebody completely different for that silhouette. That's really so cool. you, re you really can't tell who it is. So I, I love the mystery. I, lo I love any any movie that has an element of mystery. I love that. 
Um, and like you said, you mentioned the uh, the the personalities of the, the different characters, and I think that is such another great element to this movie. Like you said, the acting the acting was great, and each each character had their own distinct personality, had you know just brought something different to the table, and you know you know especially with like the interactions, you have like the one guy getting annoyed by Nall's radio. So, hey, turn down your radio. Mm-hmm. And Nall's just, he acts like it turns you down, but he really doesn't. Cranks it um, up. Yeah, and that, you know what? Now I think about it, that kind of speaks back to the novella too because the cook was like praying and singing hymns and people were annoyed by him being so loud. There you go. But, yeah, well, yeah. Nod to it, yeah. And even, you know, just the, uh, you know, the scene with McCready playing chess and getting mad at the computer, dumping his whiskey in the computer. Yeah. Um, he doesn't like to lose. Yeah, I'm trying to take. There's and, probably hey, some other was scenes. It crazy when yeah. you discovered, like, because if you don't think too much into it, or maybe you don't pay attention to it, you kind of think McCready is like this badass war hero and all these things, but he's just a helicopter pilot. But it's him exactly. as a person that lets him stand up and take charge because he doesn't like to lose, right? So I thought that was a huge kind of good character trait, something that they pulled from. Oh yeah, you know I, I didn't even really think about that, but you're right. Pilot, like, yeah, yeah, and I mean that that scene at the beginning where he's playing chess. I mean that is a good scene that does act add some a little bit of depth to his character. Yeah, you're right. Do you think at some point because you said Childs was not a character in the novella? Do you think somebody's like, you know what, this movie really needs Keith David. We need to put in Keith David. <laughs> yeah, he makes any movie better, man. Oh yeah, but I, th- I think this is the first movie that he. This is the first John Carpenter movie that he's done, I think, up to this point. Yeah, I think that's right. Because uh, he hasn't been in any other ones. I don't think so, anyway. But uh, <laughs> You tell me he's not in The Thing Part 2? <laughs> oh. You know, I've Ooh, read it's... and heard that um, the storyline of this movie continues over into the video game. And so, I guess if anybody really wants to know what happens to Childs or McCready, or if anything happens to them at all, that, that's where it picks up. So, Yeah, so I actually played that. It was on PlayStation 2 back in 2001, 2002. I actually had that game and played it. Uh, it was really, it was really, really fun game. It was kind of like Resident Evil, but, you know, with, like, I, in, in ice and, like, with the, the thing monsters running around. Um, Sounds and even. Yeah, and I think I won't give it away, but it does tell you what happens to child. There you go. But it has it has some really cool things where like you're you're joined by other like uh, team members and stuff throughout the game, and you have to figure out if they're infected or not. So it's really cool. Um, but I wonder before, if that game still holds up. That's a good question. Somebody let us know. I bet you there's a YouTube Wait. video of like a playthrough did, or something of it. Sure. Did you beat it? Or did you just tinker with it and stop? No, actually, I, I did beat it, yeah. Oh, so you know, like, the whole resolution. Yeah. You're going to have oh, to tell me what? when we're done. Okay. So, um, in the game, you're actually not McCready. McCready. Um, like, the, the whole setup for the game is you're part of another team that's went to investigate. Oh, okay. It goes to investigate what happened there. and that, So, that's... But, Man, you uh, make me want to play it, but I'm terrible at video games. Unless it's Mario Kart. <laughs> pretty good at that. Yeah, yeah, but there. But even before that, like in the '90s, I don't know. It's, it's some like in in between the John Carpenter movie and the video game, there was a series of comic books that picks up the story as well. Oh, um, I'm gonna was, eBay those as soon as we're done. 
Yeah, it was it was from uh, Dark Horse Comics, I think. Okay, yeah, that makes say. sense. Because they're the ones that do like the aliens and the aliens versus predator and all that kind yeah, of cool yeah, stuff. Yeah, they'll do some <laughs> darker, right? Things. Yeah, and so those actually show what happens too, because they carry the storyline forward uh, from there. So it's hey, you know how some people cool. go on vacation, like Universal Studios lot or something, and they take picture like in front of. Um, the DeLorean or on set of maybe Star Trek, which I would definitely love. But man, how cool would it be to visit like this set of this and be able to take pictures of places where John Carpenter filmed the thing? Oh, that would be so awesome. Yeah, that'd be cool. Outpost 31 on the oh, Universal Watch. Oh, it's got the name down. There it is. <laughs> did they make a board game in this? Like some sort of. They did. Yeah. They made a board it, game. I guess they... it's a strategic game of some kind. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's. It's something like that, probably. I, I have never played it myself, but I'm, I'm It'd definitely. It'd be cool if it. you open it up and the characters are actually the characters from the movie. Like they're like three or four inch miniatures, and it looks like it looks like Keith David. That looks like Kurt Russell. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> yeah, Palmer comes mistaken. with a joint. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> if, I'm, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, I think they do have the little figurines, you know, for the playing pieces or whatever. So that's kind of cool. Oh, man. Uh, but they did have. At Halloween Horror Nights in uh, Universal Studios, they did have a haunted house based on the thing. No uh, way. Yeah, yeah. So that would be cool to go through. Um, you know when people yeah. are like, if you had a time machine and you could travel back in time and do all these things, man, I think I just discovered what I would do. Now, so moving on to other versions, or not, not really other versions, but like talking about continuing the storyline, we do have the 2011 The Thing, which is acts as a prequel to John Carpenter's The Thing. What, did you, You've seen that one, right? I have, but I've only watched it one time. I want to give it a rewatch now, kind of knowing that it's a prequel, because that was kind of the big shock, is they didn't throw that in your face until the end. So now knowing it's a prequel, I wonder how it kind of, like if you see it coming, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm actually, I actually don't mind the, the remake, or it's not re- the prequel. Um, so... And I think that I'm trying to remember if I've watched it in reverse, like I've watched the prequel first and then the thing, because the prequel actually leads perfect, leads up perfectly into John Carpenter's movie because of the way it ends. Yeah. Um, so I think that would probably be a fun watch as a double feature, watching those two together. For sure. Um, Last year, I showed Julie John Carpenter's The Thing for the first time, but I showed her the Howard Hawks movie first, obviously, because I'm a big fan of the 50s movies. So I showed her that one. Then I showed her the John Carpenter one. And I think we watched them one week apart. Like one was a Friday night and the other was a Friday night. And I know she really liked it, except she ha- – I'm not say she hated, but I know she was really taken by the fact that it had such an ambiguous ending. Like she's just like, oh, like, oh, like that feeling it left her with. She hated that feeling of not knowing but I was like, and I was like, and there's another one. She's like, there is. I'm like, yeah, they remade it in 2011. And I didn't tell her it's a prequel or anything. Like I wanted her to get that true shock. And she doesn't research movies um, unless we're, you know, doing a podcast about it or something. So that surprise is still there. Tell me that on Voodoo, the opening line is in this prequel to the John Carr. I was just like, oh, like it literally just ruins it right there. I was so oh, mad. I was just like, we're not even going to watch it. <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to let it die down. Hopefully she'll forget, and then we'll check it out. Oh, okay. I'm just waiting for it to go down to like five bucks, and I'll buy it. I, I think it doesn't stream that... anywhere for free, man. Really? That's yeah. surprising. Well, none well, of them do. Yeah, um, that, that, 
that's that's weird. I don't, I don't know, but um, and I think the thing that really that the prequel really struggles with is this effects. I think I think the effects are fine, but I think they could have been better because they had all the practical stuff done and ready, but the yes. studio said no, we want it to be uh, computer like CG. Like, yeah, I hate it, man. It's it's just like, and I know this is kind of detouring a little bit, but recently I told you I showed Julie the Predator, or Predator for the first time. You know, mm-hmm. 1987, Arnold Schwarzenegger. The effects of the Predator look amazing, like just the costume alone. And they spent $1.5 million on that. Did you know that's about the same that they spent on this movie for the effects? $1.5 million? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, But just saying, a movie from like 1987, a movie from 1982... You know, two examples of how great it can be. 2011, we can do anything. Why do we take the easy way out? Why does it happen? I, I don't, yeah, I'm sure it's hard. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure it takes some severe talent to be able to make it look as good as it does. But uh, we've always said it. I feel like a broken record. Like CGI, it shouldn't replace it. It should enhance the practical effect. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, oh, and you know, being a music guy, I can't overlook the soundtrack to the thing. John Carpenter's The Thing oh, has a really, dude. really great soundtrack. And wasn't it done by uh, uh, Ennio Morricone? Oh, hey, I'm a music guy, but only because I like it. You, you tell me. Okay, let, let, let's look it up here. Why are you doing ben. that? I was gonna say, here you go, Ben. Another awkward silence. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving uh, it in, huh? <laughs> So Ennio Morricone, any I don't know how you pronounce it, Ennio Morricone, maybe? But he just good. passed away in 2020, that's sad. Um, Shout out to you, man. He also did like some spaghetti westerns. I want to say with like Clint Eastwood and stuff. Let's see here. Sure. Well, while you're doing that, I'll tell you, um, I forgot the guy's name. I know it's like Dimitri or Demetrius something. The guy that does the music for the original The Thing is amazing. I downloaded the soundtrack on Spotify a while back um, when I was doing the episode for my other show. And if you haven't heard it, dude, download the um, the thing from Another World, the original soundtrack. It's pretty awesome. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out. Okay, let's see. Man, this guy has a ton of credits, so it's just taking me a while to kind of work my way down through him. He, of course, he's done a lot of Italian movies. Sure. Goes hand um, in hand with Spaghetti Westerns. Yeah, so I think there was a lot of Spaghetti Westerns. Yeah, so he did the good, the bad, and the ugly. Okay. Okay. He did for a few dollars more. Uh, but yeah, so so it's really cool that John Carpenter was able to get him to do the score for this movie too, because you know when you listen to it, it sounds like a John Carpenter score, really. I um, honestly, I thought it was. <laughs> Had you not told me that, because it falls right in line with like Precinct Thirteenth and everything. Yeah, exactly. It's just got that. And it, and it, yeah, it's just like that. Dump, 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 dump. You know, it's so it's so kind of sparse sounding, but it, but with with the setting, the wintertime setting, the isolated feel, man, it just really it encapsulates that so well. It sets the mood for it. Uh, and I think that's what music has to do. It has to set the mood for like your movie or whatever you're doing. So, so that's really cool. And before know, yeah. we shut down, I, I got to ask you one more thing. Yeah. Did you have? And, and I know this might be kind of hard. That's why I'm asking you to answer first, because I'm still thinking. Did you have a favorite death scene in this movie? Hmm. Yeah, I think I got to go with uh, the Norris chest scene. You know, the Doc Hopper <laughs> getting his arms bitten off. 
so I think amazing. That, it's just like the iconic scene. You get, I mean, I've got to go with that um, because it's just one of those things you just don't expect. Like, <laughs> yeah, like and we think, should okay, have because the original um, Alien did something so similar. Oh yeah, you're right. I didn't even think about but that. Nobody, nobody saw it coming. That's that's true because because before you had whenever the thing presented itself or, or it made an appearance, it was like it was like confronted and it was like trying to defend itself. But this is like uh, not a dead body or you know kind of like a dead body on a table or like yeah, somebody it's not that's like move. yeah, it's just it's like an unconscious body and he's trying to do the. You know, the jumper cables. What do you call those things? The defibrillators. Yeah. Jumper cables. <laughs> <laughs> start my yeah. heart. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. But uh, no, and just uh, the chest opens up in that mouth. Oh, it's like, dude. oh, my gosh. Like, how did they do that? Like, I know. I know. Even today, you're, you're looking at it and you're just like, I want to know. And and that's where I, I noticed that the Doc Copper has the nose ring. Yes, I, same. Yeah. <laughs> it was cool before it was cool. I know it's just weird. It's like, do you think his nose ring was made of copper? Could be. That's why they call him copper. Yeah. So, and, Andy, my favorite scene in this movie is it Fuchs? He's the one that turns partially into an alien, right? And he has the claw, and he runs outside. Oh, that's that's Bennings. Bennings. Okay, I know I said it's my favorite scene. Obviously not if I can't get the damn name right. But dude. <laughs> That scene of you talked about earlier, how it was like in the TV spot, the ad. He runs outside and you see that claw come up. And I'm just like, oh, like it's a trick, right? It's a tease because that's the only part that the prosthetic is there. But I'm like, I want to see more. Like that looks amazing, right? And then yeah. that that horrendous, like I can hear it in my brain that that roar that he makes. And then when they just start dousing him in fire, oh, it was so badass, dude! And he's just laying in the snow, burning to death. It reminded oh, yeah. me of the original when they doused the thing in fire. Like they threw kerosene on him and then buckets of fire. It was amazing. I think the thing that makes that scene so disturbing is like it looks like Bennings. You know, it's it's him basically except for the hands. But then right. he like just lets out that scream. And you're like, oh, it's not him. <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, I bet he doesn't have a glitter in his eye. I bet you not. You know, one of the things like there's always this debate of like, do people know that they've been taken over like by the thing? And I think that they were wanting it to leave it as they don't know, like people don't know. Even and even in the novella, it was like people they don't know if they've been taken over. Like, so it that's, makes me think of the scene with Palmer because yeah. they're all strapped down and he's just sitting there and he's like the last in line, mm-hmm. and he starts to react because one of the blood samples reacts and he just starts moving around. It's like, do you think the whole time he's sitting there like, please don't pick me, please don't pick me? You know what I mean? Like, right, I, yeah. Or you think he's like. If, it, if shit goes down, I'm going to transform. Or is he just sitting there like, this is so stupid. I can't believe you would assume I'm one of these things. But then as soon as the blood reacts, boom, that's when he transforms in, you know, different conscience. I don't know. I wonder, you know, once Palmer's affected, if he just, you know, smoked a joint, if he would have been chill after that. If he would have been Dude, I, he smoked so much weed, I thought he would have been immune to it. Like the alien wood couldn't even <laughs> take mobile, man. He was so high, I didn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess on that note, I think we'll wrap this up. Um, Dave, I know you've got your hand in a lot of different podcasts, a lot of different projects. Let the people know maybe some of the latest things that you're working on and where they can keep up with what's going on with you. Yeah, man, appreciate that. So I co-host with you because you and I are longtime friends. We have so much fun doing this. But similar um, things as we 
our schedules are so different. So whenever Andy's not available, I have another show that I do. It's called The Podcast from Another World, which I kickstarted based on the 1951 The Thing from Another World. It's a play on words, and I love the old school movies, and I got my girl joining me, and so now we host it together. And real quick, my girl Julie grew up on a farm, wasn't exposed to all these movies. She loves them, but on the farm, they ain't got the Wi-Fi, they ain't got the cable, you know? And so now... We get to watch these movies. So a lot of these are first-time watches for her. And so it adds a new twist to the show. So for anybody who wants to hear about kind of horror and science fiction from, I would say, the 1920s through maybe 80, then you can come check out the podcast from Another World. And then, uh, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll release Christmas episodes. Um, I just got to say with the whole winter thing happened, that put a... Um, a stopping point for a few months. And so we're going to get another episode out soon, but for anybody who wants to try to keep up with any of that stuff, just come find me on Twitter. If you follow Andy, you probably follow me, but if not, Hey, I'd love to hear from you. I'm at Dave underscore phantom. Awesome. Yeah. And I am at black cat podcast on Twitter and also on Instagram. I'm at Andy Ustery. That's a N D Y U S S E R Y. And that's probably where I'm going to post any information about new episodes that come up. And also, uh, we are part of the Slightly Irregular Podcast Network. And on Twitter, that is at Network SIP. And uh, online, you can go to the website. It's uh, SIPnet.us, where you'll find links to all the different shows on the network. And, uh, yeah, it's it's a, it's a uh, I don't know what I was going to say. But anyway, it's a thing, yeah. <laughs> it's a thing. Check it out. Uh, you know, yeah, listen, it's something. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so until next time, whenever that may be, you've been listening to the World of Horror. <laughs>